Good morning, everybody. Um, we are now on part four of the Call to Faith. We're in Zechariah now. So what we're doing uh, is we're going through uh, three books. This is the second book, Zechariah. We're going to be able to, we should be able to cover within a, a good amount of time, um, chapter one today. Um, there's somewhat of a, a repetitive theme to Zechariah one initially, but there's it's, it's a continuation we'll find uh, left over from Haggai. So uh, it's really important uh, that we see that. And, and why is it kind of, <laughs> in some ways, when we read the first part, you'll think, why are they still having to be told uh, to come back to God? Why are they still having to be told? Uh, and this is because it's, it's not far off uh, from where Haggai left off. It's two months after Haggai's first prophecy, within a month of another prophecy in Haggai 2, uh, and this was between October and November, uh, 520 BC. Uh, Zechariah served the Lord in the years after the remnant returned from the 70-year Bab Babylonian exile. Uh, his prophetic career began in the reign of Darius. Uh, these are just some helpful facts historically for us. Uh, they're all of uh, Medes, they're Persians. His career was not marked by the reign of a king as we might see in other uh, prophets because there was no king of Israel or Judah in this period. Uh, there is a what we might call a fun fact, I suppose, if you can call it that. Uh, but in Zechariah, he is the most references to the Messiah out of the three minor prophets, uh, the most references to him. Uh, and this is a, a particular way, actually, in, in Zechariah's written. Um, this is really difficult for some because there's some that will contend some verses speaking to Revelation and some don't. And there's, there's a lot of um, debate around that. <clears throat> But strangely, this is a quite a complex book because what you'll find in Zechariah is that in one verse, he'll speak about the first coming, which was Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, rose again. And literally in the next verse, he'll speak about Jesus' second coming. So there's, there's a, it's quite confusing. And so we're going to carefully unpick it and try and find out where, which bits he's talking about. What might not be necessarily, weird, I certainly don't agree with or agree with in terms of what uh, the what the theologians say, what it might mean, because you look, you read for yourself and you think, you're not sure. We'll get into that and I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that. Um, so we need to be on our toes as we go through this book, uh, but also discover how it can help us today. Um, Zechariah shows that God, especially in Zechariah, sees a bigger picture than we could ever see. Uh, God sees the whole of time as clearly as it were today. And from our perspective, prophecy happens uh, thousands of years apart. And we know this, we're reading into these minor prophets now, and we're seeing that they're being told something that isn't, uh, that isn't going to happen right now. It's going to happen beyond their time frame. So uh, Zechariah is the kind of bigger picture, I suppose, of what God is doing. And so we'll, we'll look at that as well. Um, for God, all of time is present. All of time is present for him, uh, even in this moment and forever. Half for us to grasp this concept of a God that lives outside of time who can see all things from beginning to end, Alpha Omega. It's very difficult for us. So we always see things in the view of God did this then, then he did this then, but God's able to operate outside of all of that. So he sees time, certainly from his perspective, as in the moment. Um, and how you explain that, I don't know. Maybe ask him when you get there, okay? 
if, if, if that's a thing, if that's even possible to ask him a question. I don't even know. I've not seen that in the Bible that you, you're able to do that. Um, but the first eight chapters of this book are directed to the builders of the second temple and the returnees from the Babylon uh, exile. In Haggai, the focus was on the temple. In Zechariah, we find that God shows he's also interested uh, in the very lives of his people. As we will see, the book of Zechariah is very much uh, akin to the book of Revelation or Daniel, uh, only mostly in its heavily vision-based. And so we'll, we'll need to pick apart eight visions uh, of what Daniel is, uh, sorry, Daniel, <laughs> of what Zechariah is saying. Uh, so very similarly written uh, to Revelation and Daniel. Zechariah is only mentioned twice in the whole of the Bible, apart from his own book, obviously, uh, which is uh, Ezra 5 and Ezra 6. But even before uh, anything he will say, Zechariah's name itself, I think, might be both a positive and negative meaning from a people's point of view. The name means the Lord remembers. And we can think about that and think, well, that's great because the Lord remembers and he's going to save us. and He has saved us. And then you think, oh, the Lord remembers. And he knows what I've done. And he knows what I'm doing. He knows he remembers everything um, that we do. But we find in chapter one that God is withholding his mercy towards his people because of their disobedience. But then he relents as he calls them to repent. And his anger towards the nations that assisted in Judah and Jerusalem suffering grows. So he eases off his own people. Uh, the four nations will find, we'll see, that scatter God's people, represented by what we, what we see as four horns. And we'll talk about how the horsemen and the four horns work. What's, is it revelation? Is it the same thing? We'll look at that too. Uh, but then we find a very particular description, and I find this, I don't think I find it anywhere else, which is the craftsman. So then we find the craftsman come uh, to deal with the four horns. Uh, and now you're going, oh my goodness, what's going on here? Uh, you thought Revelation was hard when we did Revelation. This is going to be something to get your head around. So let's have a look. What I'm going to actually do is I'm going to bring it all together in one. We're going to do text, meaning, and application all in one because these, the way this is written doesn't necessarily lend itself to do kind of do a text reading and then, and then do a separate meaning application. It kind of has to be done all together. So we're going to do that all together now. So we'll start with... Uh, Zechariah 1, 1 to 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Idu. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now and the prophets? Do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. What we find is somewhat, as I said, a continuation uh, from Haggai. We see God starting with exactly uh, in the meaning of Zechariah's name, the Lord remembers, and he, he starts by telling them, just as we did actually in the last one, 
he reminds them, remember what, what, what you were like before. So he goes back and he, he says, remember what your fathers was like before. Remember what they did. And remember how they suffered by their own hands, by their own choices. It's something as a Christian you have to come to terms with. Uh, is that we, we, we begin in this state of non-belief and we think it's God's fault. He's doing this to me. Lord, why are you doing this to me right now? And yet right here in these verses, we have something that just blows that away. The people saying, we, we got what we deserve. We did things we shouldn't have done. We done things against the Lord that he told us not to do. Even more than that, he offered us a way out and we didn't take it. He asked us to believe and we didn't. He asked us to trust and we refused. It's very difficult then to come to the conclusion that it's God's fault, as it were, that he does, does anything uh, that we deserve. Uh, actually, we do deserve hell. We do deserve condemnation. But in Jesus, we now have salvation. We don't deserve it, but he does it anyway. But as we read on, we understand that God was angry with the fathers of those that he is speaking to now. They failed to return to God from their evil ways and so suffered as a result. And much like the remnant that we read, um, much like the remnant that we, we started to read about in Hagar, we find that to some degree history has a habit of uh, repeating itself. And so we find that again. <laughs> So God uses a particular way to offer them a route to repentance, but also to prepare them for what the visions will say and how they will be presented. What God tells them is that his promises and warnings not only outlived and outlasted all the previous prophets and ancestors, but came true as God had stated back then. He says, do they live forever? He says, have they gone on as much as my word has gone on? No. Did I tell you what would happen? Yes. Did you hear me? No. So on this day, as we look at the temple, we're kind of wondering what state is it in? We're only, we're only a few months on from Haggai. We're still in a state of seemingly calling for repentance. But this temple is still in ruins. And now what God is doing is showing them that this ruined temple is a reminder to them. Of all those decisions that were taken before. Of all those things that had happened previously by the fathers before them. All those decisions, even their decisions... Decisions have consequences, as we are seeing here. Now, it must be clear that there's a, there's a tension between what God does and what God plans and what God executes in terms of carrying out. That will always happen. He will always do that. No man can stop that. However, do we want to benefit from what God's doing? Then we have to obey. Do we want to have the, the blessing of God? Then we have to obey. Now, God's plan will come about regardless, but there are consequences because we cannot go through life thinking that, especially now, if I'm saved by Jesus, there's this no works kind of faith where I don't have to do anything. I don't have to change my life. I don't have to do anything different. 
I can just believe in Jesus and that's it. I can stay as I am. Yet that is not the call of Jesus. In fact, the call of Jesus is to change your life. The call in the New Testament after Jesus is to persevere, is to look for change in your life that changed from the time before you believed in Jesus. It cannot have hallmarks of the same life you had before. So here we see this result of disobedience, this consequence. It's also useful in preparing for what will be revealed in the visions. And the visions, of course, are all about what is to come, but says what, what you do now matters. But it matters in regard to rebuilding their relationship with God. For what God will show them today will be in the years to come. And as I said last week, in times that they won't be around. God's word, and as much as in the days of the old fathers, will outlive the remnant even in Zachariah's day. And in some ways, when you look at this, you think it's, it's almost God gracefully repeating himself over and over again. Listen to me. You know of all the history that has happened before. Don't go down the same road again. Don't do that all over again. Because the same thing will happen again. What does the Bible say? There's nothing new under the sun. As if we come up with these different things in different ways and suddenly God's bamboozled by what we do and the ways we do them. Oh, that might trick him. Oh, that, that'll, that'll deceive him to think I'm a good person. God is not surprised. He is not outwitted. But I do wonder if this is what does uh, prompt the people here in Zechariah. I wonder if there was a, a lack of awareness of consequence caused by their actions. They very much lived so much in the moment that they lost sight of an eternal God. An everlasting God that has a plan many times past their and our lifetimes. Isaiah 40, 28. You recognise this now, right? You recognise this verse? Is a song playing in your head? Yeah? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God is here right now today. God is still doing what he's doing today. And yet we do have this sight of God, don't we? That somehow he is sometimes a tired old man, that he somehow just is tired of us. that somehow will outlast him even, maybe. It's a strange concept that we, we live our lives in this strange way that even as I had to remind them, do you not know, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God? To tell them the Lord is everlasting. He's going to outlive you. I mean, you must be in, a, in an incredibly terrible place to have to be reminded that the Lord is everlasting. Considering the fact that you already know that the Lord God is not created, he is creator, ever been the creator. But we do this. We sometimes have this view that uh, we outlive God in some subconscious way or another. But I also wonder why, why there's uh, so many televangelist prophets claiming to bring prophecy today as well. 
uh, when I look at this. We're all about living in the moment to some degree, and maybe even some parts of the Bible are taken out of context in that regard, that we're meant to live for today, don't have to worry about tomorrow. That's an entirely different context in Ecclesiastes. What we're looking at here is don't worry about the world tomorrow, but yes, of course, plan ahead. God tells us to plan. God tells us to think about the future, our actions now, what happens and the consequences of those actions in the future. But I find it weird, and I was thinking about this in these tele-evangelists and these so-called prophets, uh, that they say that something is going to happen today, something's going to happen tomorrow, or they say something's going to happen at least within their lifetime, and maybe in the next few years. But I want to be clear. There are no prophets anymore that we see in the form of the Bible here today. They don't exist. Anyone calling themselves a prophet is a liar. I'm going to say it right now. In terms of a prophet of the Bible standard, there is no prophet. Jesus is the last and the only and, and what was needed. Now, can you prophesy? Can you bring the word? That's different. That's a gift that God might enlighten us through his word, that he might, we might need to share something with the church. That is possible. But there's no such thing as prophet. And some people debate that. And that's fine. We can have that debate that's fine I, I don't see in the bible that you can have an office of prophet anymore you can certainly have gifts you can certainly do things that god will bless you with and do things but here's where it's been abused right here's where we're looking at and i've potentially been abused that they call themselves actual prophets and as in the biblical standard of prophet as if the bible needs another one when in fact if we profess jesus christ he is the last and ultimate and only needed Son of God, Saviour of the world. So what we see on these uh, TV shows, I think, is a, a cheap trick at best. But at worst, a diabolical insult to God and Jesus Christ. It's a terrible insult to him. Because for them, his finished work on the cross and completed word in Scripture is seemingly not sufficient for them. So they want to come up with more things. They want to add to the Bible. They want to add to the word. I don't know if you've noticed when I've heard these so-called prophets. I've not heard one so far that brings a, a prophecy, a so-called prophecy, that is beyond their lifetime. I keep hearing next year will be the season that we'll reap and sow and all this stuff and we'll get rich. And I never hear any one of these people talk about a time when they're not around anymore. Remember Zechariah, remember the Bible. Most times when we hear about prophecy, it's all about looking to Jesus. This is looking to a time when these people will not be on the earth anymore. And yet for some reason, people are deceived by so-called prophets who talk about today. Oh, if you do this, then by next year, you will have sown into the kingdom and you'll get more money and you'll get more things and you'll get more stuff. I'm yet to hear someone who talks about a so-called prophecy that's way beyond their lifetime. And the reason for that is because it's nonsense. The only prophecy you need is found in the Bible. The only word that you need to understand, that we need to understand in terms of what's coming next, is found in the word. It's not found in my mind. It's not found in what I dream up. It's found in the Bible. 
And yet, seemingly, that doesn't seem to be enough. I've noticed a lot of uses, uh, these people use numerology. They don't say they do that, but they use this numerology basis to tell you a so-called prophecy. And that's a belief in the occult, in the divine, in the mystical. And it has a relationship between a number and one or more other events. Especially if you've ever kept up with it um, during the last election in America, uh, how many times I saw these so-called people come out and say, Trump is going to be president. I've had a prophecy, they would say. I've had a prophecy. And, it, and it's sad that when it doesn't happen and it didn't happen, they disappear, isn't it? They suddenly disappear. Oh, did you not? Oh, I didn't. No, I don't talk about that. I don't talk about what I, what I said. Don't. Let's just continue. There are two things that happen. Either they're wrong or it's luck. There is no way that God is dealing with, and I, I will say that, and I might be wrong, but I'm, I'm telling you now that God is, I don't think God is more concerned with a particular president being, becoming president of the United States than more than he is concerned with the kingdom. He is more concerned with the kingdom than anything else. He is more concerned with his plan to bring about Jesus, the second coming, and before that, for many to come to him and believe in him. That is it. In terms of what I see in the Bible, that is what he is concerned with. And yet we, we pull these things together from events that happen around us. We say, oh, God's doing this, and this is, this is the fifth seal, and that's the fourth seal opening, and this is the revelation time. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, church. Be ready. Don't worry about the seals. Be ready for when he comes. You're going to worry about what seal it is at this time? My goodness, church, you're going to get carried away with it. Let, let it be known, let us be sure, Jesus is coming back. Get ready, be ready for his return. Worry about these distractions. But in reality, what we find in terms of these uh, so-called prophets is this verse that God is unsearchable. He is unfathomable. So rather than prove God right again in the warnings he gave their fathers, he calls the people to accept that he is always right. Another difficult thing when you become a Christian is to say God is right. When, when in your heart, your heart is telling you, oh, I don't want to be wrong. Oh, I so don't want to be wrong. And you fight it and forever, every day. Every day, because of how we live, because of our bodies are broken and sinful, we're going to be living in this time where we're going to always have to submit and force our flesh in the power of the Spirit to submit to God. Because it will want to not obey. It will want us to be self-righteous. But it's all about submitting to him because he is right. So instead of living for themselves, God calls them to give, to live, to glorify him. Because no matter how much people will deny it to themselves, God will prove right in the end. If the whole Bible, at least until up until the point before Jesus returns, is not proof enough that God is always right, I don't know where to go from there. 
So we pray for people, right? We pray, Lord, please give them revelation of your word, of your amazing Holy Spirit. I, I read an amazing story, actually, just, it's, I suppose it's kind of related, but um, there's a guy who, um, and I, his name has gone out of my head now, uh, who wrote a book recently. He played uh, Matt Chandler in Friends, and his name has gone out of my head. Matthew Perry. He wrote a book recently about his addiction, about his struggle with that. Uh, and I didn't know, actually, he's found God. I mean, I'm talking about the Christian God. Uh, he's found God. And it's an utterly amazing story. Uh, there was a quote uh, in his book uh, that Peter Gregg actually posted on Twitter. Uh, and he said there was this moment where he'd just got gone, called out to God. And he said, I can't do this. So he was really in his tether. Addiction had taken over him. But he was like, this is it. I don't know what to do. It's either life or death. What happens? He, he cried out to God. And he said in that moment, he had just, just this amazing peace. He suddenly saw everything. As in he saw what he was doing to himself. He, he saw the addiction. And he had this amazing experience with God in this moment. And he says, God saved me. And even in his book, he says, even today, he says, you think, well, maybe it's one of these celebrity moments, right? Where they go, Oh, I found God, and then that's it. They kind of like leave it at that, and then they just carry on with their lives, right? He says, not only then, not only then did he uh, discover God, not only then did he discover the truth and see what, what he was doing to himself. For the rest of his life, he said, I'm going to seek truth. I'm going to seek God, seek Jesus. That's amazing. I never knew that. I never knew that about him. Uh, and it was just an amazing testimony. But isn't it sad that we get to this place? where it's, God has to break us. Because we don't want to go there. We don't want to give in to him. And yet God here says, there's an easier way, because people have done this before. Your fathers did this before. Your fathers got into this mess. You don't need to do this. You just simply submit, repent, and come to me, and I will bless you. So then he continues. Zechariah 1, verse 7 to 10. 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Idu. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the ravine. Behind him were red and brown white horses. Asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. And the man standing among... Uh, standing among the myrtle trees explained they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth I'm going to explain what this is because this is a bit of a what does this mean what's he talking about who are these people this particular message comes three months after the first one so Haggai's last message is about two months prior to the message of Zechariah and this month is approximately February on our calendar today Zechariah's vision was simple enough in what he saw. But what does it mean? One man on horseback leading other horses and their riders, patrolling to and fro throughout the earth. And what we're told is that these horsemen were sent on a mission from the Lord. Specifically, we find that these are observers of what is going on and so less likely to be connected with the four horsemen of Revelation. So there's another translation that changes who the man is. It gets very weird. Uh, if you look at King James, it kind of changes who the man is, and it, 
then it says the man is the angel of the Lord. It gets a bit strange in the translations. What I would say in looking at, across these translations and looking at commentaries and good people that look at this stuff is that it's probably is not Jesus. The angel of the Lord is talking to a man. There's a sense of representation of imagery in order to convey a message. So we need to be careful. The angel of the Lord speaks to someone else, which suggests it probably is not Jesus. Who knows? Who knows? But it's important. It is important because what we don't want to do is run away with this and say, oh, these are the four horsemen. Now, the four horsemen, as we know in Revelation, they're going to come, or at least four of them, at least are going to come and they're going to do terrible things to the earth. These are observers. These are people watching over what's happening. Some say that they're watching over exactly what's happening right now, which is they're watching over the people build the temple. And so they're watching and they're just seeing what is going to happen. And so what we're told is they're sent on this mission to observe, to see. Now, for you uh, gardeners out there, this is a, a myrtle, myrtle, myrtle tree. I'm going to say myrtle. Uh, this is a really interesting tree to use in this vision. This is a type, of, and I can't remember what the type of myrtle tree this is, but they were the same thing in common. Myrtle tree is evergreen all year round. Never loses its leaves. Never. So there are people observing, come to observe God's people, standing in trees that don't ever lose their leaves. Isn't that clever? So they remain hidden. They're not coming out. They're not, they can't be seen. Only, it's only revealed to Zachariah that they're doing this. So this tree is used as a depiction to say they're in hiding. You can't, we can't see them. There's observation going on, if you will. So when Zechariah sees them standing among, among these trees, this would probably give credence to that idea that they were watchers of what was happening. And their purpose is to ascertain the state of what's going on, state of the enemy, state of God's people, and they're just watching. So throughout the year, they just visually, in a vision way, I suppose, not in, not, not in those particular trees, but certainly from a vision point of view, they're, they're hidden. They can't be seen. And they're watching what is going on. Uh, Boyce has a really good quote about this uh, tree, which is really interesting. Israel is not likened to a cedar of Lebanon, which is majestic, or an oak tree, which is strong, having blossoms that emit a sweet fragrance when crushed. The myrtle tree illustrates the strange grace of Israel in affliction. So under, under the hill, under crushed, but then they release this sweet smell, this sweet aroma. Which I, I find that amazing observation. Uh, that actually under oppression, fragrance, sweet fragrance comes out of these trees. So he goes on. We don't get too lost in the vision stuff. We need to treat it where it needs to be looked at, and then we move on. Uh, verses 11 to 17 says, And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We've gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Now, when you read that, it sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds fantastic. The whole world is at rest and in peace. It's not. It's not a good thing. I can tell you why. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from towns of Judah, which you've been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure 
I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. What is going on here? When asked how long the Lord will have no mercy on his people, the answer is the same that Zechariah began with. Cry out. Cry out as the prophets did before about your fathers. For whatever is about to come by the Lord's hand, in order to benefit from it and be on the right side of righteousness, the people must first cry out and repent to a holy God. He says at the start, uh, Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord, I will return to you. Something is going to happen and it's going to be, uh, it's going to be significant. So God whilst righteously angry at his own people who had turned away from him, he is now exceedingly angry, says one interpretation, at those uh, nations who have gained peace reflecting suffering on God's people. So they've, the world's got peace because of inflicting suffering on God's people. So it sounds great to begin with, and it's a false peace. In effect, it's a false peace. It's that these four nations, whoever they are, have created their own peace at the cost of, at the cost of God's people. Does that make sense? So it's almost like, yeah, but peace and Stuff is spoken about in Revelation. It is, but it's also spoken in the false peace as well in Revelation. Same principle is going on here, that we're finding this false peace, that they're suffering because of this peace for big nations, other ungodly nations, uh, as it were. But right here in this moment, as we look at this, this struck me as being a reminder of the true fair judge that God is. He first says his own people, to his own people. They cannot just coast along because they are his people. They cannot just carry on just because they're his chosen people, just doing whatever they like. They still must choose him. They still must choose to follow him, trust him. But also for those who gain from oppressing God's people, so too will they see God's anger. So that when we, when we look at the Bible and we keep seeing that God is a fair judge, God is a perfect judge, this is, this is one of those places where you can find God is a fair judge. He is, at one point we read, and I can't remember where it was, because it may be a few weeks ago, we read that even God wasn't calling his people his people. He said, you people. You people, he said. Then he says, my people. And he says, but my people come back to me. My people repent and come back to me. And then we read that he was not giving them any grace. So to think that just becoming a Christian just seems to, well, it's okay, God's on my side. No, he's not. He's on his own side. He's doing what his plan needs to be done and how it needs to be carried out. Now, do you want to be part of that? Do you want to be part of the kingdom, part of the plan? Yes. Is God going to fight for your politics, for your opinions? No, absolutely not. I say that without doubt because I read the Bible and his plan is clear as day in these words. God is all about God. 
we are caught up in salvation? Absolutely. Are we the primary purpose of why he does anything? No. God does everything for him, his own glory. Two Corinthians five, verse ten. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad, fair, perfect judge. But let me say this equally. God is deeply concerned about the state of his people. So if they cry out to him, they call on him, God promises to restore them. Not only in the form of prosperity, but primarily in the form of mercy. And this mercy has a particular way of working. This mercy is to encourage and spur on the people to have God's house stand one more time in the form of this temple and amongst them. Not only would the temple be rebuilt, which at that time had only had the foundations, but the city itself would again expand due to the prosperity that God had promised. And 16.17 says, Therefore this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. What's really interesting about these words is the, is the terms used. There's a term of overflow, and the other one is measuring line. Now, anywhere else in the Bible, in the original language, these are used to describe judgment, terrible things. So these are used to describe negative things. In this particular case, he uses the same words to describe a positive outcome. And that's just strange. Even as you read the background around that, these people who, who study the original language look at it and go, God just does that sometimes. He just takes language and he, and he switches the meaning of it. He switches it in the opposite. So these terms, measuring line overflow, used to describe destruction of desolation and desolation in the Hebrew text, but it's here used to explain a restoration and expansion. And so in many ways, he's, he has, I say many ways, he has done this on purpose. The way he's revealed to Zechariah is to show a sense of weight, of power behind what he's going to do. So it's, it's not like, let me, let me try and unpack this a little bit. It's not that certain things are going to get a little bit better. So when he uses his language, it's like a complete change. If you come to me, if you change, repent, Everything that I'm building will change. Everything that you build will change for my glory. So he uses these terms almost to describe the sort of ferocity of the change that will happen. Rather than being negative, rather than being condemnation, desolation, now it means this restoration to restore people to himself. But either way, however you see this language, it is clear that God will do whatever he does with this unshakable righteousness. He will do it whether it's in desolation and condemnation or he'll do it 
because it, to bless and to prosper. And this is why Zechariah is actually seen to be more encouraging than Haggai. Haggai set the scene of what God was doing in that moment, but Zechariah conveys this strong will of God to accomplish his plan. And so then, 18 to 21, then I looked up and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered, he answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. What does this mean? <laughs> the four horns. So they seem to represent four Gentile world powers. They seem to represent worldly powers, worldly nations. Uh, we, you might find these in Daniel as well. So there is some link to Daniel in this. Um, metaphorically, the horn was applied to strength of government. So it's the world. Again, it's, a, it's going back to uh, non-believing, uh, worldly-based uh, people, structures, governments. And it was used to represent these nations. Um, then there's theories about around at what timing are the four horns? Is it a revelation type four horns, as in it's in the future, or is it now? Um, they're likely to represent Babylon, uh, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Um, it gets very, very complicated to untie all of this. And getting too far into it will tend to, again, distract us from what God is actually saying through these verses. But these horns symbolize power. They, uh, the number four symbolizes universal. So even if the very basic level, we're talking about universal power. The four horns represent this universal worldly power uh, in that they've got together and they're trying to run rule over God's earth. When this vision was particularly spoken of, the kingdom of Babylonians had now passed away. Uh, that of the Med Med Medes and the Persians were, was present. So it was in that moment that it was happening. Persians were there. Then we see the Greeks and the Macedonians of the Romans was yet to come. So we see this in the context of probably in, the, in that present time rather than a particular revelation type revelation. Um, but here's where we, we want to get to the really important stuff. I say this because uh, I think it is much more important. God is going to send four craftsmen to terrify these powerful nations who have oppressed God's people and gained much from their almost total demise. God actually raised up other nations to judge nations that scattered his people. He's been doing it from old. God promised to curse those who uh, cursed Israel. And we find in Genesis 12, that was done uh, so early on, and it was still come to pass even as we're seeing this in Zechariah. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse all the peoples on the earth we blessed through you. God promised to break the power of those who use their power against God's people. 
uh, there's a quote here from John Buchan. He's a Scottish, was a Scottish novelist. Uh, he was a Christian. And he says this, the Church of Christ is an anvil which was worn out many hammers, which has worn out many hammers. Our opponents may boast of their strength, but they do not realize what they have challenged. It's a great quote, isn't it? And yet, the risk there is to go, yeah, challenging the church. No, 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 he's challenging, ch challenging God. The challenge is he's challenging God. They do not realize what they have challenged. This is great encouragement. God will get his plan done in the end. God will do what he is meant to do. And obedience is necessary in order to be wrapped up in that same plan, to be caught up in what he is doing. So even the call then on his people back then is still the call today. Come, submit to Christ. So I just want to draw, as we draw this to a close, I just probably just need to point out some things here that we just need to pick up on, need to learn from as we, we finish here. It's true that God is, is zealous for his people. It's absolutely right. He will break the power of those who use their power against his people. He will do that. No matter what you see today, it will happen. No matter how oppressed you see God's people being oppressed, one day, even as we saw in Revelation, they cry out the same thing. How long, Lord, will you allow this to happen? And then the time comes and then everything changes. But I want to give a warning before we start getting into this mentality of God is on my side, because this happens a lot today. We, we tend to think God is on our side in terms of, as I said before, our opinions, our politics, everything that we think, just because we're Christian, in some ways we, we kind of think, yeah, God is with me on this one. But we do that quite a lot in many different things. But I want to point out this verse, which will help us just to understand this. 1 Peter 1, 22, 25. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. There's another verse there, isn't there? But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Always a reminder that the Lord's word lives on beyond us. That we think that our choices do have consequences, but in, in, the, in the fullness of the kingdom, it is a, it's about God's, what God's doing. It's not about what we're doing. Our call is to stay obedient to what God wants to do and what God is doing. This particular word tells us of a God who judges all sin, but who invites us to return to him, not for judgment, but for blessing. And we must return, not just once, but we've got to do this again and again and again. As often as we sin, we come back to him and say, Lord, forgive me. And this is important because before God goes to those who abuse their power, who oppress Christians, trying to share the gospel, he calls on his own people first to repent and have a heart of humility. To recognise that it was it not for God, we would be lost in our sin and self-righteousness. Was it not for God, we wouldn't be here today. 
we'd actually be condemned. We'd be in hell right now. Since the foundation of the world, he's proven time and time again that we so easily turn away from him. And yet what God has, has for us in Jesus Christ is forgiveness and redemption. Not only that, but blessing upon those who seek and believe in him. The power that God shows in the latter verses we looked at are not to validate some self-righteousness in our heart about others who will oppose God. What they're meant to do is to remind us that no one person is deserving of his mercy. Not one. No one is good. Not one. But he gives it anyway. What they're meant to remind us about is exactly how powerful God really is and give us this sense of reverence, sending us back to our knees, not sending us on some self-righteous journey. It should make us respond with, what is my righteousness in comparison to a great and holy God? What is my opinion in comparison to a great and holy, perfect God? It's nothing. When we understand that these little self-made, self-righteous mounds we stand on mean nothing, then we can see that what really is important is that the good news is preached to others before it's too late. Because all of this, even right here today, nations and kingdoms are but a fleeting moment in comparison to a holy God whose word remains forever. And so I leave you with that to encourage you that when we get drawn into these things, we're drawn into issues and opinions and things, we're not here to, that, that's not our primary reason we're doing this. We're here to share the gospel. I said in weeks past, how can we bring a gospel of love? How can we bring a gospel of redemption, of repentance, if we ourselves are dirtying this gospel with opinion and politics and nonsense? We stand in front of people sharing the gospel. We're going, hey, I'm just as terrible and disgusting as anyone else. I'm saved by grace and I've given myself to Jesus and that's all he asked me to do. Let's pray and then we'll worship.